Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Please stand for the reading of God's word. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the word of the Lord. I saw him today walking into our sanctuary, a very proud father. Uh, I was very happy to see him too. Um, We want to take this time to celebrate and also commemorate, uh, give thanks to God for a new life in this world. She's joining us for the first time in our church. Uh, April. Uh, so could the parents of April come up? Are they? They're there. Okay, great. You can just, actually, if, if she's here, why don't you come up on stage where the light is? And I just want to introduce to you uh, Jimmy and Haley, the mom and dad of April. And we're going to give her this. She was 6.11 pounds, uh, 19.75 inches, born on April 14th. Uh, 11.27 a.m. at Hackensack University Medical Center. So uh, let's just welcome April to our congregation. Here we go. Uh, let me pray. Let's, let's pray for them together. Lord God, we just want to thank you for a miracle. We thank you for the precious life of April, someone that we have been waiting for for so long, someone that we are so thankful that is now in our lives. Lord, I thank you for the steadfast faith and Lord God, love that you have shown this family. But Lord God, I also want to lift up Jimmy and Haley to you and I ask God that you would bless them as parents of three now. May you give them an additional helping of strength, of encouragement, of joy infused in their lives as they now are proud, they are now proud parents of this very beautiful daughter, April. We ask that you would continue to raise her, help her to be strong and beautiful in your eyes. May she change the world so that, Lord God, people will see that your favor is upon her and that, Lord, this world will become yours. So we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Uh, we have one more uh, announcement that, uh, that we have two people in our congregation. Um, they are college students. Are they here? Joseph and 
Juliet, right? Joseph, if you're, can you come on up? I wanted him to share a little bit about what he's going to do. Uh, there's a mic on the side. Let's get this one going. Yeah, why don't you guys come up on stage and share a little bit about what you're going to do. Hi, I'm Joe, and this is Juliet. And um, we're going to Chiang Mai, Thailand for two weeks. Uh, we leave tonight, and uh, we're working at an orphanage called Mango House. And the children at Mango House, um, they're, not for, they're foreigners. They're not natives of Thailand. They're from Laos and uh, Myanmar. And most of their parents, they moved to Thailand, and they're, they're like abusive and stuff, so they, they moved to um, Mango House, where they go to school in the city. And um, yeah, we're just there to serve them. We're there to um, tutor them in English and stuff. And we're hosting a VBS on the weekend for them. They're going to be missing school on Friday. And um, yeah. Okay. And thank you for all your support and the prayers that you guys, you guys have been saying to us. So, yeah, if you can say. Thank you. Uh, they stay on up here. Uh, we're just going to pray for you. Uh, why don't we just bow our heads and as we send them off, offer a prayer for them as well. And uh, yeah, let's lift them up to the Lord. Lord God, we just want to thank you for the lives of Joe and Juliet, both of whom you called into ministry, into missions. And as they go out, Lord God, we ask that you would give them boldness and courage to be able to proclaim the gospel, to show love, and Lord God, to lift those that can't lift themselves. Father, we ask that you would protect them during this time and help them to return to us safely. But Lord, may your will be done and may your gospel continue to spread throughout the world. Thank you, Lord, for giving us warriors and missionaries to go out where, Lord God, help is desperately needed. So we lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So they'll be back in one week, two weeks, oh, two weeks. So let's keep them in prayer. It's interesting, right? We have a blessing of someone joining us, and we are blessing people to go out as well. Uh, I'm actually very excited for all the things that are happening in our church. Uh, we have two nominations for elders I think we're kind of aware of, but I don't think we are aware of the two deacon nominees. So I, I just want to put up, up some pictures so that you can see who they are. These are the, our nominations for our elders. So we have a nominating committee. They've uh, prayed, they've gathered, and they have selected these two deacons to be nominees for elders. We're going to have an election in June to have them nominated as elders. And the one on your right is Jubin. He leads worship from time to time, and you can see him in the back always on the soundboard. He has always been very active and involved in our ministry. And also to, to, to your right, I'm sorry, that was to my right. <laughs> to your right is Sung Kim. That's Sung Kim here with that glorious smile. Um, he has been so active behind the scenes. Even well, while he is not an active deacon, he decided to take a break to have his wife serve and his wife is now such an important and active part of our leadership body. But he has still been active while serving, while not being a quote-unquote active deacon. And you can see him in the back always serving. And these two are nominated 
to be elders, so please keep them in prayer. I want to introduce to you our next two people. They're nominated deacons. And to your left is Priscilla. And Priscilla has been helping out with college and almost on every event where we have some kind of decoration needed, she was always the first one to volunteer and she's always out there. Wherever we need, she has been volunteering and I'm so happy that she has been nominated deacon. And then we have James, one of the oldest members, period. No, one of our oldest EM members. Uh, I'm sorry. One of our oldest EM members. Uh, he's been with us from the very beginning, I think. And, and now he wants to step up and serve as a deacon. And I'm so happy uh, that both of these two can be nominated as deacons. So the reason why we're sharing this with you now is so that you can keep them in prayer Our church is developing, maturing, and growing, and we want to continue raising leaders. So please do keep them in your prayers. Thank you for the the pictures. Good selection. We have been on the Gospel of Luke for the past few weeks. And the Gospel of Luke I have dubbed as the Gospel of the Poor. Last week we talked about the feeding of the 5,000s. And how this feeding of the 5,000 is incredible because what is seemingly something mundane is in all four accounts of the Gospels. Today, the passage that was read is only recorded here in Luke. So last week we have a passage that was recorded in all four Gospels. And today, this event is recorded only in the Gospel of Luke. And I think it's just as important and it's incredible because Luke deemed this so important, even though it wasn't in the other Gospels. This is so important that we know that he put this in there. And so the scene begins. And when the scene begins, it might surprise us that Jesus, Jesus, the one that we worship, he didn't know current affairs you might be disappointed now (laughs) like he didn't know what had happened he doesn't know everything that's going on wait this is Jesus right no but somebody had to tell him and inform him about what the current affairs were Jesus don't you read the paper seriously because I'm all about current affairs in fact I grew up uh, in elementary school where you had to um, take the New York Times and select a story I'm sure many of you have done the same. Uh, You take a story and then you highlight all the words you don't know. You do a little summary of what the article was talking about. And you have a little dictionary that you made with all the words that you don't know. And by the end of the year, you have this whole like slew of vocabulary words that you now know in your arsenal. We didn't read the Daily News when I was a kid. We didn't read the New York Post. They were too low grade. We read the New York Times. And I looked it up. The New York Times still has the highest reading level of any newspaper, any widely read newspaper in all the country. So here we are. New York Times. You've got to keep up with current affairs. I do it. In fact, I'm a little obsessed I try not to click, but anytime the news says something with Trump, oh, it's so rough. I was like, don't click. Just giving him popularity. Oh, I can't help it. And anything that has some kind of clickbait news article, you're just like, oh, 
But see, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't have the latest and greatest info. He didn't wake up at 4.30 in the morning to find out what happened to the GOP party and what they were announcing. He didn't, he didn't have this unhealthy obsession that I have with current affairs. And as I was doing and preparing the sermon, I had to repent a lot. I was like, oh, I may have an unhealthy obsession with current affairs. I don't need to know exactly in real time what every single candidate is doing what they said, what that means according to MSNBC or CNN or Fox News or some other news outlet. I don't need to know exactly what is happening everywhere and what everybody is doing. However, this was current events given to Jesus. And Jesus is being informed of what's happening. If we don't know what's happening in the past I'll just give you a little brief history. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. He was a very unpopular and unpleasant governor. Even if the New Testament didn't write about Pontius Pilate, and we have Pontius Pilate even in our Apostles' Creed, but even if the New Testament and our Apostles' Creed didn't have Pontius Pilate in it, other historians wrote about him, and we know enough about what he did in the past. He would take money from the temple, the Jewish temple. He's not a Jew. He's a Roman. He would take money from the Jewish temple. He would literally steal and seize money, and he would build himself an aqueduct. And then once people would rebel, once people would get angry and rise up and kind of protest, like in some political parties, they protest, they go to other rallies, and they protest he would brutally crush those rebellions and any kind of rebellion that started. At the time, they were talking about Galileans who had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple. There were Galileans up north. They made a pilgrimage. So they were pilgrims going down south to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer sacrifices. And we see here that Pontius Pilate killed them in the middle of them offering sacrifices so that the wording is that the blood of their sacrifices mixed in with their own blood. That's how brutal this killing was. That's how brutal Pontius Pilate was. And it would be akin now if the U.S. government or any kind of government would come in to this sanctuary while we were giving Christmas service and killed all of us, just killed us all. That's the uproar and outrage people are feeling. Imagine that happening, but it did happen while they were giving sacrifices. So the question starts coming up. How can this happen to people? Aren't we believers in God? These are pilgrims. These are people who are holy. These are people that want to dedicate themselves to the Lord. Are they just seemingly good then? I guess they were kind of sinful. I guess they weren't that good. But don't you see the question they're asking is really about themselves too, isn't it? Because guess who else is making a pilgrimage from Galilee to Jerusalem this very moment in the text. 
It's the people that are with Jesus. Jesus from Galilee, when we started, is traveling down to Jerusalem. They are making their own pilgrimage, just like the Galileans that were slaughtered from Pontius Pilate. Whoa, maybe we're scared. When you're scared about doing something for God, what do you initially think about? Is there a sin in my life? Is God going to protect me? Well, and then Jesus says, what about the Tower of Siloam? And you know what? This is so intriguing to me. Scholars think that the Tower of Siloam was actually built above an aqueduct to house maybe like Roman soldiers or defenders. An aqueduct. We just said Pontius Pilate was known to have taken temple money and built an aqueduct. And in Jerusalem at the time, there were only two aqueducts. So what are the chances? 50-50. It could have been that tower that Pontius Pilate built. But this tower, it fell and it collapsed and it killed 18 people, 18 Jews. And the question that people are asking now is why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And we have visceral, natural reactions to what happens when things in the outside world we find out about. We see, like we see certain political candidates rising in fame, rising in popularity. And like, this is my question. Why is the pendulum swinging so far? Did it swing that back that far before? Now it's swinging so far. And so a visceral reaction, a natural reaction to the things that are happening on the outside is, it must be someone's fault. It's someone's fault. It's some person's fault. Was it their sin? You know what this is really saying? Bad things happen, sure, because of bad things. It's easy for us to think, but what we're also saying is good things happen because we're good. Good things happen to me because I'm good. Either the person deserved it, Or, you know, I deserved it. That's why good things happen to me. There is a famous movie that I used to watch. Every time I came home, I popped in the movie and I watched it. I think I watched it a million times. A famous pastor uh, who I consider a mentor of mine in many ways, he calls it the sound of mucus. <laughs> but it's the sound of music, right? But um, there is this one part where the, the actor of Christopher Plummer, the character of Christopher Plummer and the character of Julie Andrews get together finally and they sing a song and it's called Must Have Done Something Good. Um, there's another song by, um, I guess, self-proclaimed Christian artist group, I Must Have Done Something Right. There is something in us that says, and, and the actual lyrics are, you know, whether in my youth or childhood I must have done something good. I'm not going to sing it, but I must have done something good. And it's because it's kind of romantic, isn't it? You meet someone, you fall in love, and it's just so good. You, you feel like this person is so good. I must have done something good to deserve this, right? But that's visceral. That's a natural response. That's a human response. So if something bad happens, we also respond the same way. I must have done something bad. Or easier to say is they must have done something bad. 
That's the natural response. And this is the idea of karma, where the fate of individuals in this life is either a reward for good or evil for punishment. But what that doesn't leave any room for is grace. It doesn't leave any room for grace. And in fact, a song like, I must have done something good, as romantic as it seems, or I must have done something right, as poppy and cool as that may seem, leaves no room for grace. The other reaction, there's two kind of reactions that you could get. The other reaction is that it's God's fault. It's God's fault. He had the power to control it. He didn't stop it. It's God's fault. He has all the sovereign power in the world. How could he not just stop this one little thing from happening so that this disaster didn't strike? So these two things are visceral reactions to what happens when we see tragedy. It's either some person's fault or it's God's fault. And eventually what happens is we think nothing I do matters. If it's God's fault, why would anything I do matter? Essentially, what we are saying in lieu of it's this person's fault or this is God's fault is we are saying I am my own God. Why am I being judged by a set of arbitrary rules written who knows how many thousands of years ago? If that's going to happen, might as well just make up my own rules, what I think is right, and I'm going to live by those rules. These are two reactions, and as natural as it may seem, Jesus is saying, it is wrong. It's wrong. The funny thing is, Jesus never answers why. He never gives in to the people asking the question, why did this happen? Don't you see, we love to answer the question why. We'll speculate, we'll ponder, we'll conjecture. We love to answer why. 9-11 happened, I'll tell you why. It's this person's fault, it's that person's fault, it's this group's fault, it's that group's fault. We love to answer why, but Jesus here doesn't answer why. You know how tempting it must be if you know the answer to not give an answer? How hard it would be for me if I know the answer and I know somebody's asking me a question for me to not answer the question on their terms. But Jesus never answers why. This is what's happening. Look at those poor people. Look at their tragedy. And Jesus responds by saying, look at you. You're poor. Instead of addressing why, instead of eulogizing those victims that died in a seemingly tragic death, a senseless death, he addresses the people in the second person. I tell you, unless you repent, you too will all perish. In the question, why do bad things happen to good people, 
we assume that there are good people. We make a lot of assumptions, right? And we assume that all actions are bad. Or this particular action we morally deem as bad or good. And the question is difficult in itself to answer because the question itself is flawed. Because of two things. Number one, you, second person, you, are more worse than you think you are. If I gave you almost unlimited power, how would you use it? If I had the strength of not just one, but of two very powerful men, right? Very powerful bodybuilders, maybe. And then some little runt bumps me and then curses me and then flips me off. What would I do with just that little amount of power? I question myself. Uh, I'm a sinner. But if I gave you power, just even a little bit, what would you do? But here's an even deeper question. With the little power you already have been given, with the little money you already have been given, with the little time you already have been given, what have you done? We are much more worse than we think we are. Let's not kid ourselves. We are in a state of depravity much worse than we initially thought. By pointing at people saying, oh, those poor tragic people, they must have done something wrong. Oh, that happened to this family because I know what they do. They're a wasteful family. They always spend their money on frivolous things. It was bound to happen. See what I'm doing here? I am lifting myself up. And I'm saying I'm not as bad as those people. But here Jesus is saying, you are much worse than you think you are. Number two, you are so much more loved than you think you are. You are so much more loved than you think you are. Jesus comes and he sees the deprived state and he sees the self-absorption and the denial that people have and he gives them a chance to repent because he wants to show them that he loves them. He loves you. You are so much more loved than you think you are. You think you're unlovable and you can only look to the outside party to make yourself feel good. He's saying, look inside yourself as depraved as you are. I love you. I want you. And he calls people to repent. People think repentance is only about giving up something. Yes, it's somewhat true. But it's about coming back to what you were originally meant to do. I can see and take a flashlight. And I can use the flashlight as a hammer. Or I can use the flashlight in a manner it was meant to be used. And in that way, it's fully used to its full potential. All this time, we have been, in a sense, rebelling by saying, I can do what I want with my body. I can do whatever I want with my mind. I can look at whatever I want. I can listen to whatever I want. I can eat whatever I want. 
what I am essentially doing is I am rebelling. Rebelling against what I was created to do. And what that ha- when that happens, yes, sin does enter. But sin has entered the world. We're surrounded by this power of sin. There's sin everywhere around us. What Jesus is offering is he is saying repentance is a transition from death to life. It is drastic and it is dramatic. It is sudden, but it is substantive. It is a changing from mourning to dancing. And how do you measure repentance? And here we see the quality of our repentance is seen through, according to the parable he shared, according to your fruit. What is the fruit of your repentance? We can say we've been converted, that we're Christian, that we're believers. But if you have no fruit, then I can safely say there is no repentance in your life. Both in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, the same exact address. Chapter 3, verse 8 says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If we are people that are going to repent, turn back to the ways we were meant to be made, then we must produce fruit in accordance to repentance. In the NIV, it's, well, the the caretaker says, I'm going to put, you know, fertilizer, I'm going to water it, and if it still doesn't bear fruit, fine. But actually... They changed it now, and newer versions might have fine with exclamation mark. Fine, like maybe he meant it sarcastically, but he didn't. But other translations have it as well and good, or so much the better. You see, once we start bearing fruit, and once we repent, once we live for the purpose we were made for, there is a celebration that takes place from our Creator. You want to see how much you're loved? He celebrates when you are producing fruit. When you produce fruit, when you do what you are made to do, there is a deep satisfaction, a completeness, a fulfillment that comes to you. Yes, but it makes your maker rejoice. It makes him happy. It makes him ecstatic that even in Zephaniah 3.17 it says, he exalts, he dances over us. The fruit of repentance is living for the purpose that you were made for. It is doing God's will. It is asking the question, what is God's will for me? And doing it. It's not what's my will for me. It's what's God's will for me. However, I won't deny that for some of us, the Tower of Siloam has fallen on us. For some of us, deep tragedy has given us pain and we have been stricken into mourning for some of us the tower of Siloam has fallen on you but don't blame others stop feeling sorry for yourself don't blame other people don't blame yourself don't blame God the first thing our reaction should be Let's turn to God. Let's repent. 
Don't blame the politicians. Don't blame the system. Turn to God. Seek his will in your life. And you will see God starting to form it. And you will see God starting to heal it. And you will receive power in your bones, power in your spirit, so that you are able to not just contend, but fight and be victorious over the things that had captured you before, over the things that would engulf you in sorrow, shame, and just sadness before to give you the true joy that you were meant for. Only when you turn to God, only when you repent and follow Jesus will you be healed. And only when you repent will you live in the fullness of the purpose you were created for. Let's pray. Lord God, we just want to thank you for this message. And in the book of Luke, Lord, we know that the word repent only comes up nine times. And it's all in the center. And we grab the center right here in this passage. And it's so important that we get it before we move beyond the middle section of this gospel. It's so important that we see that we have to turn from our ways to follow you. But Lord God, I pray that through your kindness, through your loving embrace, that we would turn to repentance and we would turn to you, God. Be with us now. Help us be a church that produces fruit in keeping with repentance. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's take this time to meditate and pray on the passage and the word that we've been given. What is God asking you to repent of? And the challenge I give to you is when a robber repents, when a thief repents of stealing, you don't say, well, last year you stole $1,500, so this year just steal 1000 You tell that thief, stop stealing. It's killing you. What do you need to repent of and stop immediately so that you can turn to God? Turn to God now. Give him your heart. Let's take the next few minutes to meditate and pray.